All right, welcome everyone. Thanks for coming this evening and those who are tuning in uh, all around the world, you know, tuning into this thing. Uh, what is that guy that used to say in all the ships at sea? You remember that, uh, that newscaster? I forgot what his name was now. I guess I'm older than all you folks who can't remember. <laughs> Wasn't, I don't know if it was Walter Winchell or who it was, but he used to have this broadcast. And say, and one of the, he would say people tuning in and all the ships at sea. Welcome, and uh, this is week six of the Gospel of John. And uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, thank you again for your kindness and grace to us, giving us another day and how you have provided for us and uh, kept us safe and we just trust you that whatever comes into our life, we know that you're in control and we know that uh, nothing happens outside of your ultimate plan and purpose. So give us uh, grace to, uh, to withstand whatever may come our way, whether we need grace for bad times or good times. We know that uh, we can endure all things because of how you have worked in our lives and what the Savior has done for us. We're thankful to be able to study the life of our Lord and to learn uh, about what he said when he was on earth and help us to understand this and to glean from it and to seek to be obedient to what we what he's teaching here, what John is telling us about the ministry and the teachings of Jesus. Help us to be obedient to the things we learn, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we are looking at uh, John chapter 12, the close here of just John chapter 12. We actually finished everything except some summarizations here in John 12. Uh, we're looking at Jesus... Uh, 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 we're looking here at number five, uh, the summary of Christ's public ministry. And so we are at the very end of Jesus's life. We're at AD 30. We're, in, we're at Passover here, uh, coming up right now in chapter 13. We're in the, the last week here of Jesus' life. As we've seen his triumphal entry and so forth. And uh, so we're coming now to the upper room discourse. So we're in the spring of A.D. 30, and uh, so this is number five, a summary of Christ's public ministry. This uh, section is the close, I say here, of a major division of John's gospel. It consists of two summarizations, one by John and one in the words of Jesus. So we've been dealing with this public ministry. This is chapters 1 through 12, then 13 is this private ministry and his ultimately his death and crucifixion, resurrection. So first of all, we'll look at uh, the ministry of Christ summarized by John, the writer of the gospel. This is verses 37 through 43. And I've just kind of lumped this all together here. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, um, these are miracles, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. We're talking about most of the people in Israel. Uh, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord 
been revealed. For this reason, they could not believe, because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah says this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. I say here, now we will see that in the remaining chapters before the trial, his trial and crucifixion, Jesus devotes himself to his disciples. The great majority of the Jews are excluded, shut out by their unbelief. Some explanation must be given for such large-scale unbelief. The Christian answer, which is also explained by Paul in Romans 9-11, through is that this unbelief was not only foreseen by Scripture, but also necessitated by Scripture. Verse 38 says that this unbelief happened in order to fulfill Scripture. Verse 39 says they could not believe. So as we think about this, you know, what's the explanation? Because we understand human, the human condition and human depravity, we, we understand the explanation right there. Paul says, you remember 1 Corinthians 2.13, the person without the Spirit does not accept, doesn't welcome the things. So even though Christ is there, you know, if your heart is, uh, if you have a, you know, if you're an unsaved person, there's nothing there to make you necessarily believe. You need the work of the Spirit. You need regeneration. That's what caused us to believe. The, the Spirit did a work here. Uh, but here it talks about uh, God hardening their hearts uh, and that the fact this was prophesied. Now remember this, uh, this hardening of the heart doesn't, uh, does not deny human responsibility. Uh, verse 37 says, they still would not believe. They would not believe. Uh, and then we'll see later in verses 42 and 43, it says there, they would not confess their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise from men more than praise from God. So on the one side, you've got the human side. People chose not to believe. Uh, they had various reasons. Here, the reason is they didn't want to be put out of the synagogue. They loved the praise of men and so forth like that. Um, now, I say next here, um, the first scripture John cites to prove his case is Isaiah 53.1. That's in verse 38, which is the prophet's, prophet's astonished appeal to, the, to God at the rejection of his message of the Messiah, the servant of the Lord. This unbelief is also tied to scripture's prediction of a judicial hardening. God himself has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. So, as I said, this, this judicial hardening that the Bible talks about, Paul talks about it in Romans, that God has hardened the majority of their hearts. Talks about, you know, hardening Pharaoh's heart, that kind of thing. Uh, this is not presented as some sort of uh, capricious manipulation uh, by some arbitrary power. Uh, God is not cursing morally neutral people or morally pure beings. So this is God's hardening of people who, uh, who have chosen 
to reject God. So that's what we have like in Romans, in Romans 9 through 11. Uh, it's what we have here is that God's hardening means that there is, there is not going to be any opportunity for these people. They have rejected and God has hardened in the sense that there's not going to, their destiny is settled in that sense. Uh, you know, we look out at unsaved people today, we don't know anything about their destiny. We have no way of knowing. Are they, is, are, will they be saved or not saved? We, we don't know. We just have to present the gospel and pray that they'll be saved. But we don't know, you know, who's going to be saved and who's not. Uh, we have no way of knowing. And uh, in this case here, in, in these hardening cases, God is saying, these people have rejected me and I'm issuing my judgment now. You know, it's like my judgment right now. And we know that's true too. There are people here on earth today who will not accept Christ, who will die and go to hell, unfortunately. In a, in a sense, God could tell us if he wanted to <laughs> who those people are. In a sense, their judgment is already certain because we know they're never going to trust Christ and so forth. Uh, in some of these cases, God will tell us and he says he hardens their heart. That is, he's not going, they're not going to turn to God. They're not going to turn to Christ. These people had every opportunity. Uh, as it says here, you know, they, they, verse 37, they would not believe. It doesn't say they, they could not believe, but it says they would not believe. They, they, they just chose not to believe. There was nothing physically uh, causing them to, to not believe. That's true for unsaved people around us. There's nothing physically that's causing them not believe. Their problem is a moral problem. Their problem is a moral problem. That is, they're sinners, <laughs> and they don't want to believe. They don't will to believe. They don't choose to believe. But it's not because they have some physical constraint or there's something that's keeping them uh, from, from doing that. They just choose not to. We all choose not to. <laughs> all have gone astray. There's none that seeks after God, you know, that kind of thing, unless God in His grace uh, shines His grace upon us. So um, this, is, this is God's condemnation of guilty people who have themselves chosen not to believe Christ in this case. Verse 42. Yet at the same time, uh, even among the leaders, even among the leaders, yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the human praise more than the praise from God. The word for leaders here is the same word used for Nicodemus in chapter 3, verse 1. This would probably also include like Joseph of Arimathea that we'll see later in 1938 who provides a tomb to bury Jesus in and asks for his body from Pilate, you remember? Nicodemus was willing to stand up for Jesus in the Sanhedrin in chapter 7, you remember? He, he does stand up there and ask about condemning a person, you know, who's not had a trial. And they say, are you a Galilean too, Nicodemus, or something? They, they ridicule him. He and Joseph of Arimathea publicly identified themselves with Jesus' cause by providing uh, a decent burial, uh, 
a decent burial for him. However, the faith of the leaders in verse 42, so I'm distinguished between Nicodemus, maybe Joseph of Arimathea, who their actions seem to display real belief, you know. From these leaders here, uh, this seems to fall short. And that's something we've traced out through the gospel here that John has made reference many, many times, several times. I was thinking about it. I should have just traced all these out again for us. But, you know, it starts in John chapter 2 where it says, um, many believed in Jesus, but Jesus did not believe in them. It's the same word, remember, pistuo. Jesus didn't put his, he didn't trust them. He didn't entrust himself to them. So uh, the John commonly talks about this inadequate faith, this spurious faith. It's faith just based on miracles, feeding of the 5,000, you know, that attracts a lot of people and they believe and so forth. Um, it's like, you know, it's like Simon, uh, the sorcerer, you know, in Acts chapter 8. It says there, Simon believed, you know, but <laughs> it doesn't look like he really believed. If you look at the, the context there and and how he wants to buy this power and things like that to do these miracles. Uh, so just because it says somebody believes, the devils believe, <laughs> uh, but they're not saved. Uh, you know, so there's a, there's a kind of a belief. Sometimes we say head belief, heart belief, but whatever. It's, you know, there's levels of belief. We talked about those levels of belief in, in more theological terms about knowledge, assent, and trusting and trusting yourself. So um, maybe that's what we have here, people who sort of believe this, but th their faith, at least from what we can gather, kind of falls short here. Um, but, you know, perhaps some of these people later did believe. You know, Acts 6 says that, So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So... You know, uh, this is, a, I guess, a chapter we did, dealt with the sermon this week. But So there were these kind of priests and maybe leaders who ultimately did believe. Um, so that, that might be the case here. Um, it's possible that John here, we, we have to think about who John is writing to and why he's writing and so forth. Um, it may be that you know, he talks about this inadequate faith, talks about people like this because he may have known people in his day you know, who had this sort of uh, you know, faith who displayed, um, but displayed similar hesitations, that is, in his day. That they, they, they really wouldn't come out and openly acknowledge Christ. And maybe he wants... He wants us to know, he wants them to know that this sort of secret faith won't do. You can't, you can't really hide your faith, you know. I mean, it's not saying we can't deny Christ, you know. If you torture a person enough, they, they, you know, they might do it. You know, we might all deny, like Peter, you might deny. It's not saying you won't do that, but you can't just really just totally hide your faith. It, it's got to come out if you're a genuine believer and... So John makes, maybe he's making a point by that. Then we see this ministry summarized by Jesus in 12, 44 through 50. Then Jesus cried out, Whoever believes in me, 
does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. Now we've seen this kind of language throughout the first 12 chapters. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. This is all very familiar, isn't it? I have come into the world as light so that no one who believes in me should have stay in darkness. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person, for if I did not come to judge the world but to save the world. There is, a, there is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. That's why we call this as a summary. We've heard everything that Jesus has said here throughout the gospel. I say here Jesus summarizes his previous teaching, powerfully drawing his public ministry to a close. Most of these subjects have been previously incorporated in the gospel. The results of belief in Christ are known to be a removal from darkness into light, the reason that Jesus is the one sent from the Father and is actually one with the Father. Unbelief, however, leaves one to face certain judgment and it leaves him without excuse. The revelation of God in Christ that has been rejected will serve to judge him in the last day. We've seen that kind of language all the way through the gospel. Well, now we come to chapter 13, the private instruction. Uh, 13 through 17, uh, mostly. And then the first part of this is this commonly called the upper room discourse. It's not all spoken in the upper room, but it starts there in the upper room. Uh, Jesus' final discourse in the upper room, 13, 1 through 14, 31. The first 12 chapters of John's gospel cover a period of three and a half or two and a half years in the ministry of Christ. Remember, we talked about that before. We don't know exactly how long his ministry is, depending on whether that festival of five ones of Passover and the charts I've been using have been assuming that that festival in five ones of Passover, and that means there's uh, four Passovers there, so we're talking about three and a half years. Now in chapters 13 through 17, we come to the second major division of the gospel. All of this is restricted to one evening in Christ's life. When only the twelve were present with him, this is the evening before his crucifixion. The synoptic gospels clearly indicate, that's you know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that Jesus ate a Passover meal with his disciples. Passover is celebrated on 15th Nisan in the Jewish calendar. Remember, the Jewish calendar is not January, February, March, April. They have different names for their months, and their months are 30 days long. Uh, this is the same meal John is describing in these chapters. It seems that Jesus' disciples entered the city shortly after noon on Thursday, 14 Nisan, procured the room, took a lamb to the temple court and killed it, roasted it with bitter herbs, and made other arrangements for the meal, including the purchase of wine and unleavened bread. Now, John doesn't discuss all those details like the synoptics do. You know, he doesn't tell us all these were, you know, we know this is what they had to do. After nightfall on Thursday evening, when it was 15 Nisan, 
reckoning the beginning of each day at sundown. So remember the day, 15 Nisan would begin on what we would say is 14 <laughs> that evening. Uh, after nightfall on Thursday evening when it's 15 Nisan, Jesus joined his disciples. They ate the Passover. Jesus' death took place on Friday. This is Thursday, 15th of Nisan. Then Friday, 15, still 15, Jesus' death took place about 3 p.m. He was on the cross from 9 a.m. to about 3 p.m., six hours there. And so his death takes place on still the 15th of Nisan on the Passover day. So um, we don't know exactly where, we don't, <laughs> we don't really hardly know at all, we're not sure where this upper room was. Uh, you know, there's a reference to in Acts 2, in Acts 1, about the disciples in an upper room. Some people think that's the same upper room here. Maybe, maybe not. But, you know, when you look at the Jerusalem, we, it could be a lot of places. <laughs> we don't know exactly where it could be at. Um, so, um, most likely, I mean, it could be in this area up here, this, is, this area over here is, oh, we thought, think is a more wealthy area. Most people think it took place maybe in this area somewhere here. And if you ever go to, uh, if you ever go to uh, Jerusalem, they'll take you to the upper room. They'll take you to a place called the upper room. And that's located right here. It's about right down here. It's also supposed to be the location of David's tomb. It's like, you know, David's tomb is here and the upper room's up here. Now, we know that's not David's tomb. Uh, it's uh, because we know David was buried on Mount Zion, and that's not Mount Zion. So let me give you a little geography here. So if you see this area right down here, this area is what, this is the original area that David conquered and, you know, made his city, Jerusalem, right in this area. And then he bought this area up here and Solomon built the temple up there. So in the Old Testament, when they talk about Mount Zion, they're talking about this area right here. This is a, this is a if you ever go there, there's a valley here. There's a valley here. There used to be a valley right down here. Sometimes it's called the Kidron Valley or it's called the Central Valley. It's filled in today, so you can't really see it. So this, this, was, this place was sort of protected. It had a valley here, valley here, valley here, and then, of course, it built walls, you know, so, you know, it, it, it has some physical protection. And, uh, but over here is another hill. And when people started coming uh, in the 19th century to look at, you know, Jerusalem archaeologists and stuff and start figuring out, you know, they said, well, Mount Zion, that's probably the biggest hill. <laughs> and so they thought this was Mount Zion here. <laughs> they think that, so there's a hill right here. If you ever go, you'll see, uh, this, is, this is a hill, this is a hill. Uh, and, and if you, so if you look, sometimes you look at, if you look at a map, or any kind of map of Jerusalem or anything, or even ancient maps, they'll say, that'll say Mount Zion there. That's not Mount Zion. 
So, so early Christians made a huge mistake. They thought that was Mount Zion. It still kind of got that name today and so forth. And so I say that's not David's tomb because we know David was buried right here. In fact, today they're doing archaeological work. They've been doing archaeological work for a number of years. They think they found David's palace right about, right about here. And they were still excavating here. But over here is where there's, they'll take you to a place called David's tomb. We know that's not David's tomb because that's not Mount Zion. <laughs> he couldn't have been buried there. But they also think it's where the upper room is. There's a lot of uh, evidence to suggest that the upper room was in that area. There's some evidence. So it might have been right there. We just don't know. But somewhere in Jerusalem, <laughs> they got a room and... We call it the upper room, upper room of a house, or so forth. So it might have been in that particular area. So when you go there, if you ever go to Jerusalem, you might be going to the right place. It's possible. There's some, there's some historical evidence that says it's so. The problem today is that everything is built on top of each other. And so when you go to any ancient civilization and so forth, you never, unless they've dug down, you're never really at the layer of that ancient civilization because they just built on top, built cities on top and top and top. You have to dig down to find the layers. And, you know, the building there they call the upper room, they, there's actually buildings below that that they're excavating and so forth. So it might be there. But that's where they're, that's where, approximately where they're at. They've come, you know, from Bethany and they've come and got this upper room, and so after the triumphal entry and so forth. So this is, uh, this is uh, the night uh, before Jesus' death. That brings us to chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. Uh, two major emphases are drawn from the foot-washing episode. First, it is symbolic of spiritual cleansing, Second, it serves as a standard of humble service and therefore as a call for all of Jesus' disciples to wash one another's feet. Not literally, although as we'll see, some people do take that literally. Uh, that is to serve one another. So it's an example of when Jesus says you ought to wash one another's feet, we're going to take that as Baptists do <laughs> as, and not brethren and some other people as actually literally washing one another's feet. Uh, although I think my father went to something. No, that was probably a Pentecostal church. I remember him telling me that they had foot washing in his church, but they do have it in Brethren Church and some other churches. They, they still practice foot washing. Uh, let's look at the setting here, 13, 1 through 3. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave the world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The opening words, it was just before the Passover festival, are an introduction to the foot washing. That is, the foot washing took place before they actually ate the Passover meal. The final words of verse 1, he loved them to the end, mean that he loved his own to the very end of his life. So Jesus is going to display his unfailing love for these disciples, for his own, uh, in the cross immediately ahead of him, you know, that's, that's going to be a display of his love, but also in this uh, foot washing, this self-abasing love that sort of anticipates the cross, as we'll see. 
it's anticipatory of that. Number Verse 2, the evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. At this time, Judas and the devil are in a conspiracy of evil to bring Jesus to the cross. And that, is, that sets the stage here then for what we see next, which is Jesus uh, to begin washing the disciples' feet. Um, but before, you know, this episode is beginning here, John um, ensures that we, his readers, um, will, uh, will grasp how, how this episode reflects the loving character of Jesus. Because the, the, the disciples whom Jesus is about to wash their feet, those disciples include Judas, <laughs> who, as we learn here, is already being prompted by Satan, by the devil, to betray him, you know. So uh, he had already hatched this treacherous plot. It's already been conceived. Jesus knows it, obviously, and uh, as we'll see, and yet he's still going to wash Judas's feet. Verse 3. Jesus knew that, God, that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Since the Father had given Jesus all authority, he could have defeated the devil in an immediately flashy confrontation. But, you know, that's not God's plan. He had all authority, <laughs> all power. But instead, he washes the disciples' feet, and including the feet of Judas, who's going to betray him. Let's look at the action, verses uh, 4 through 5. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. According to Luke twenty-two forty-four, the disciples were debating as to who among them was the greatest. After the group had gathered at the table, Jesus got up, took off his honor robe, and girded himself with a towel. He then proceeded to wash each man's feet. Apparently, the disciples were reclining on mats around a low table, reclining on their left arms and their feet pointed away. So they're reclining like this with their feet apparently pointed away. So they're, they're lying like this around the table and pointed away. Um, now what Jesus does here, uh, you know, washing their feet, wiping them and so forth, uh, you know, was a custom in that day, in that society, you know, because of the, the dusty roads and wearing these uh, open sandals, uh, it was usual to wash one's feet at the door before you entered the house. It was customary to wash one's feet. Uh, if you, if you were invited to a dinner, the host would provide water for the guest who would wash their own feet, or maybe if he's more wealthy, he would have a servant who would oh, wash your feet for you, that kind of thing. I mean, the disciples couldn't imagine washing each other's feet, you know. <laughs> you might wash your own feet, or, uh, you know, um, you might have, some servant might wash it, but you wouldn't be washing one another's. Uh, and so this is what Jesus does. He, and this must have been shocking. Just think about how shocking this was. He gets up, 
he wraps this towel around and he, he washes their feet and, and begins to, to dry their feet. It reminds us, you know, of Philippians 2, 6 and 7, uh, of the one who was in the very nature God made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Well, then we see the objections to what Jesus is doing, 6 through 11. Peter objected to the change in the custom. He came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, do you not realize now what I'm doing? You do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. So obviously there's something going on here more than just washing feet. There's a message here. The Greek construction of Peter's question suggests an emphasis indicating indignation. Lord, are you going to wash my feet? As I noted, peers did not normally wash one another's feet, and certainly a master would never wash his disciples' feet. So Jesus' act must have been quite shocking. So just as the disciples cannot understand uh, that Jesus must go to the cross, that's difficult, they're trying to figure that one out, they don't understand what he's doing here, washing their feet. They don't understand the symbolism, which will point to the cross. As we'll see here, there's a sense in which you know, we're washed in salvation, we're cleansed. Uh, they'll understand that later, he says. You, realize, you don't realize now, but later you will understand. That's after the death and resurrection and so forth. Ultimately, they'll understand what this was all about. Peter objected to such humility. 13.8, no, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. By his words, you shall never wash my feet, Peter shows that he does not really understand what Jesus is saying. Doesn't understand the significance of what Jesus is doing. Peter is only thinking of the social custom, of course, that Jesus seems to be violating. And, you know, Jesus responds, well, unless I, unless uh, he washed him, unless he, uh, he washes Peter, which in this case is symbolic of taking away his sins, he has no part with him. So there's a sense in which we are regenerated, we're cleansed, we're washed, you know, of our sins. Peter objected to a partial washing, 13, 9 through 11. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my hand, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. You know, if, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Well, wash everything. Now Peter drops his reluctance to ha having his feet washed once he understands that such washing is necessary if he's going to have a part with Christ. In fact, Peter insists on the fullest bath. Again, it's, it's doubtful if, if Peter fully understands or understands here uh, that you know, what Jesus is doing is not, <laughs> he's not actually by this act washing way. It's, it's a symbolic of the washing that'll come about because of his death on the cross. Verse 10, Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. That is, those who've had a bath, their whole body is already clean. And you are clean. There's a sense in which you are clean. You've been regenerated. You've been born again. You've been cleansed from your sins. Though not every one of you, there's Judas, of course, for he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. 
Jesus now uses the foot washing to teach a new lesson. In verses 6 through 8, the foot washing symbolizes the cleansing that's the result of Christ's impending cross work. But Peter's response in verse 9, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well, opens up the opportunity to use the foot washing to teach another point, a new application of the foot washing. Um, the initial and fundamental cleansing that Jesus, that Christ provides, you know, is a once and for all. The, the cleansing we get at salvation when our sins are washed away, we're cleansed, that's a once for all act. So those who have been cleansed by the atoning work of Christ, uh, uh, um, um, let me see how I say that. Uh, <laughs> um, they, they will, um, that, that cleansing will never be repeated. Uh, but they will need to have subsequent sins washed away, as we, as we know. And let's explain that. So verse 10 here is teaching, we think, an important lesson that we put in theological terms between justification and sanctification. Those who have had a bath, those who have been justified, their sins are forgiven, they're cleansed, need only to wash their feet. There is a cleansing of sanctification. Um, so um, the perfect, uh, you know, this, uh, this description here, the person who has had a bath, that suggests an action in the past that has um, effects which continue to the present. That bath of salvation cleanses us and keeps on cleansing us in a way. I mean, you hear Pastor Ken rightly say many times, uh, when you get, when this forgiveness we have in Christ is for past sins, present sins, and future sins. Past, present, and future. Um, there's no need to bathe again. You don't need to, you know, that's our problem with the Roman Catholic Church. You just see all the problems there, you know, because you've got to sacrifice Christ over again. You've got to keep uh, having your sins forgiven or you'll go to, you could be going to hell if you commit a mortal sin. You know, they're just, you know, they don't believe in, 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 in that sort of that justification at all. Um, so, um, so the person who has received the benefits of Christ's death, that process does not need to be repeated at all. The, the, to use Jesus', Jesus terminology here, this cleansed person like us, if we only need to have our feet washed. This is sanctification. So that's, that's one of the questions that comes up continuously. I notice, I notice it on the Internet. I noticed people are asked this. I noticed that I was looking at John Piper's thing where they're asking questions. Somebody asked him. I've seen this answered many, many times, and I've tried to answer it too in what I've taught here when I was teaching some stuff. But uh, because it seems difficult, you know, if your sins are get forgiven, past, present, and future, why do we have to confess our sins? Believe it or not, there have been some who have taught, no, you don't have to. You don't have to confess your sins. 
<laughs> eat, drink, and be merry. You know, I mean, it's just, you don't have to. You know, that, of course, that doesn't work. So, so what are we talking about? Well, we're talking about the fact that, yes, our eternal destiny is settled. We're right with God. And if God just took us to heaven instantly when we're saved, then that would be, that would be all we need. We're, we're saved. We're taken to heaven. We're transformed. We now no longer sin. We can't sin. We have a glorified, we're glorified. You know, everything is taken care of. But we're left here on earth. We still have a sinful nature. We still commit sinful acts. Even if those acts don't condemn us to hell or anything like that, they're still an offense to God. There's still a problem in our sanctification, in our relationship to God, you know. And, you know, we can use that. We know, we know that works on the human level, too. You may have a child. And this child may sin and do wrong things, but there's nothing that they can do really that will make them not your child. You're still, you know, and, and most it doesn't work in all, but in most cases, you're going to love the child. You know, you might not like what the child's done, that kind of relationship. So that's, that's the relationship we have with God. God doesn't want us to sin. He doesn't like it when we sin. But, you know, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, that's what that verse is about. It's not talking about salvation. We don't confess our sins to be saved. We don't confess our sins to be saved. Uh, now, what we do is confess that we're sinners. Now, in that confession of sinners, we may blurt out, Lord, I'm sorry I did that. I, you know, sins are going to come to our mind. But it's not like we have to confess every single sin. I mean, this is the Roman Catholic doctrine. <laughs> When you get baptized, you're, just, you're fine, you're justified, you're perfect, but when you sin, you've got to confess that sin. You know, that's got to be taken care of because it's got to be dealt with somehow. It's got to be taken care of. You know. Well, these sins do have to be taken care of, but they're taken care of in the sense of our relationship day-to-day -day with God. We want to be in a right relationship with God. We want to be used by God. And so, therefore, when we sin, we do have to confess. We need to confess our sins to have this right, ongoing, personal relationship with God in our daily lives, our sanctification. If we want to grow, if we want to mature, that means we can't just go on sinning. We will sin, but we must confess. We must repent. We must turn from that. You know what I mean? And so we, 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 want, we want to be obedient Christians. And so when we're not obedient, we have to confess. So that's what Jesus is talking about here when, he's, when he says, uh, if you had the bath, <laughs> what you need is just sort of a daily cleansing, your feet clean. He's using that symbolism. You need cleansing from your daily contamination to sin. Am I, am I making sense here? You know, that's, that's, the, that's the proper distinction here. Um, as believers, we still come in contact with the world you know, we could use that coming in contact physically with the world. And so we need to be cleansed. Uh, that's why we pray, you know, forgive us our debts, deliver us from the evil one and the Lord's Prayer, you know. That's why we have 1 John 1, 9 and so forth. So that's the distinction John, uh, Jesus is making here between the bath of salvation and the cleansing that we need uh, in our daily lives that pertains to our sanctification, our growth, our daily relationship with God. Then we see here, since Judas was not a believer, 
Jesus says, you are clean, though not every one of you. So he's not had this bath of salvation. He's not been regenerated and never was, as we know. The explanation, verses 12 through 17. Then when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done to you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. The question Jesus asked in verse 12, do you understand what I have done for you, is explained in verses 13 through 17. Whether or not his followers understand, uh, he will explain what he has done. Now he uses the foot washing episode to teach a lesson on humility. Uh, you know, one of the ways that we manifest our human pride in our society, certainly in every society, is refusing to take a lower role and even extolling that attitude. I mean, I just heard somebody on, you know, the idea in our society that, you know, that you would take a more humble position is actually put down as a bad thing. You want to be, you want to be the winner. You want to be on top. You want to be, you know, you, you can't take a humble position. Uh, and foot washing here is an example of this kind of humble service that each of us ought to pursue. That is, service toward one another, humble service. As I said, some Christians, we know Jesus says here, um, uh, you should also wash one another's feet. You know, that sounds like, okay, you should wash one another's feet. So some Christian groups, as I said, argue that foot washing is a Christian sacrament or an ordinance and so forth on par with baptism and the Lord's Supper. Um, but what is an ordinance? What do we call an ordinance? An ordinance is an outward rite, you know, ceremony, an outward rite that Christ has appointed to be administered in his church as a visible sign of union with, um, as, a, as, as visible signs of union of the believer with Christ and with the gathered body. So these, these ordinances are appointed by Christ. We're talking about baptism and the Lord's Supper, appointed by Christ um, to be administered in his church um, as visible signs of our union with Christ and with each other, with the gathered body. Uh, with baptism and the Lord's Supper, we see the apostles acknowledging these ordinances. That is, we see, you know, in the epistles, we see in the book of Acts, we see the, the, the apostles acknowledging baptism and the Lord's Supper. Paul, remember, gives instruction about the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, and, uh, uh, and uh, of course, we see, you know, Paul baptizing and giving instructions about baptism and so forth. So we clearly see those. We don't see that. We don't see that of foot washing. We don't see Paul giving instructions about foot washing 
are. We don't see foot washing being practiced in that sense. Um, and that's true in the early church, too. Uh, in the early church documents, we don't see anything about that. Now, it did ultimately grow and become a practice and so forth, and then adopted especially um, as time went on by certain, as I say, certain denominations and so forth. I mean, it's not an evil thing or anything like that, but I don't think it's really an ordinance that, that we are required to practice. Uh, most evangelicals believe in two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, and this one has never risen to most people to that level of an of a ordinance that's required by the church. Verse 16, Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Jesus reminds his disciples of his right to lay this obligation upon them by using an aphorism or a proverb that he seems to have used on multiple occasions. You know, servant's not greater than his master and so forth. Messenger's not greater than the one who sent him. We've seen that in John already. Uh, we'll see it in John 15. Uh, the, the, they had uh, willingly acknowledged his lordship. You know, verse 13, he says, you, you call me teacher and lord. The point of the proverb or the aphorism, you know, is, is very clear. Um, no, no emissary like us, uh, no servant, no messenger, no emissary, has the right to exempt themselves from uh, the task undertaken by the one who sent him, you know. No, no slave has the right to judge any menial task as below him or her, uh, especially if their master has already performed it, <laughs> you know. So the point is Jesus has showed them what humble service looks like. He's been willing to humble himself completely and utterly. And so uh, you should be willing to do that too. Um, you know, verse 17 is saying it's not just uh, acknowledging these things, but doing these things that count. If you know these things, but you'll be blessed if you do them. And so this is urging them to adopt this humility that he displays, you know, which, as we know, is very difficult for us. Well, then we see the identification of the betrayer, 13, 18 through 30. The prediction, 13, 18 through 21. I am not referring to all of you. I know that I have chosen. I know those I have chosen. But this is to fulfill this passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. In contrast to those who show their blessedness by obeying his commands, Jesus stated that the forthcoming action of one of the twelve would demonstrate his evil nature. He referred to the betrayal that was soon to occur and explained it as fulfilling Psalm 41, 9. He who, has, he, he who shared my bread has turned against me. The psalmist is thought to have had immediate reference to Ahithophel, the trusted counselor of King David who turned against him in the rebellion of Absalom, 2 Samuel 15. Now sometimes, however, 
an event that occurred, you know, this is common, an event that occurred in the Old Testament to God's appointed king uh, is regarded in the New Testament as sort of predictive or typological of a more significant happening in the final anointed one. These kings were the anointed ones. They were God's chosen representatives. And things that happen to them are often seen as predictive or typical of things that would happen to Christ, the, the Christos, the, the final anointed one. Um, you might think that by these uh, words, I am not referring to all of you. I know whom I have chosen that uh, Judas was not part of the twelve. But that's not the case. Remember John 6.70. Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you the twelve? I chose the twelve, yet one of you is a devil. So he chose all of these, including um, uh, Judas. And so in verse 18, Judas, Jesus is uh, taking pains to show uh, that the inclusion of Judas was not an oversight. It wasn't a sign of weakness on his part. It wasn't some failure on his part. Uh, this was just all part of God's plan. Um, I mean, J Jesus does this so they, their faith can be strengthened in this critical hour. Because it's going to be a... I mean, it's going to be an upsetting thing, I'm sure, to them that Judas betrays them. I mean, they don't suspect him at all. As we'll see, they, they have no idea that Judas would betray him. They assume, you know, they're all together with, with Christ in this. Um, Judas, Judas was chosen, but not chosen to salvation. <laughs> he was chosen to be one of the twelve. And we notice in the book of Acts, as we've studied, he'll be, he was replaced by Matthias, because there is a place for the, the apostles in the future, in the future kingdom and so forth. There's 12, and so Matthias will be that, that one. Um, so, um, so we have to just remember that Judas on the outside appeared to be a, sort of a model believer. Remember, he was the treasurer and all that. Verse 19, I'm telling you now, before it happens, so that when it does, you will believe that I am who I am. Although Jesus is about to be betrayed, he's not a hapless victim. Even the treachery of Judas can only serve as the redemptive purposes of the mission on which Jesus has been sent. Here Jesus explains to his disciples that the reason why he's telling them of the impending betrayal is so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. You know, as we've noticed, the disciples you know, found it difficult to come to terms with the cross when he told them about the cross and so forth and uh, would have found it impossible without this you know, preparation. Um, he'll say again in 1429, I've told you before it happens so that when it happens you may believe. So he's preparing them so they don't lose faith. They, you know, it doesn't, it's not, you know, their, their lives are not totally wrecked here because this is going to be really an, uh, an awful thing for them. Um, so um, he's preparing them. Now, um, only Jesus' resurrection, his exaltation, 
the sending of the Spirit, the gift of the Spirit, that's going to be the thing that ultimately clears their mind, answers their questions. I mean, they're, they're not really going to be with it until then. But this is laying the groundwork. This is providing... Uh, he's, he wants to keep the disciples together. This is necessary. To say, look, this is what's going to happen. Uh, one's going to betray. Uh, so don't be upset by this. You know, he... He, 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 uh, and they didn't scatter. You know, we do have Peter betraying him, but denying him, I should say. But uh, they do stay together until his resurrection, and then, you know, their faith is vindicated and they're established in their faith. Verse 20 Verily I tell you that whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. Some might conclude the treachery of Judas announced in verse 10, might mean an end to the disciples' work. But the, Jesus emphasizes that their commission was still in force. Once again, Jesus emphasizes the oneness of his disciples uh, with himself and, oneness and, the, and, and the oneness of the Father and the Son. You know, you're with me. I'm, you know, this commission is still in effect. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray him. So after this point, Jesus had spoken about the impending betrayal in fairly oblique terms. But now he particularly identifies the betrayer as one of the twelve. One of you is going to betray me. And Jesus himself is troubled in spirit. And his anguish was visible. And the next verse makes clear it catches the attention of the disciples. Uh, it can't be misunderstood. So this points to his humility. Jesus, I mean to his humanity, I'm sorry. You know, that's the thing about it. We see these statements in the Gospels. Some things that come out of Jesus' mouth are only true of his divinity. Some things are only true of his humanity, you know. So here is the thing that, you know, God's not troubled in <laughs> his spirit. This is Jesus, the human being, is troubled. But Jesus will say things, so when you look at the Gospels, you'll see this constantly. Some things Jesus says are just true of his divinity. Before Abraham was, I am. That's not true of Jesus, the human. He wasn't before Abraham. That's the Lagos. That's the Christ was before Abraham. So sometimes he'll make a statement, and many of these statements reveal his, his real humanity here. Then we see the questioning, verses 32 through 20, 22 through 26. His disciples stared at one another, at a loss to know which of them he meant. A general questioning immediately followed the prediction of betrayal. In the embarrassed silence that follows, the disciples grasp his meaning, but are at a loss to know which of them he meant. The 11 innocent disciples knew individually that they had no plans to betray him. Uh, of course, the prediction of you know, how soon it would occur uh, he didn't say. He didn't say, you know, how soon this is going to occur. It's going to occur very quickly, and we know. They may have interpreted it in a vague fashion, and they stare at each other. What's he mean? You know, when's this going to occur? Um, you know, uh, the, the, the Gospel of Matthew says that even Judas joined in. <laughs> uh, you know, he, 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 he sort of questions... Uh, this kind of thing. What does he mean? What does he mean? Because he doesn't want to betray himself. He knows it's him, but he doesn't want to incriminate himself. One of them, the disciples whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. 
uh, Simon Peter mentioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? A more specific question was put to Jesus by Peter through John. As we noted earlier, it was customary at special meals for the persistents to recline on some sort of mat resting on their left elbow with the right arm free for eating. The head would be nearest the table with the feet extending away from it. The person on one's right would have, would have his head nearest the chest of the person to the left. So this was the position of John in relation to Jesus. Uh, so the way in which the question was relayed to Jesus makes it evident that most of the people at the table did not hear the question or they didn't hear the answer. Uh, as I say here, this is the first mention of the disciple whom Jesus loved. He will appear at Jesus' cross at the empty tomb, tomb by the Sea of Tiberias when the risen uh, Jesus appears to the seven disciples. And the final two verses, described, which describe the authority of the gospel to him. And we talked about this at the way at the beginning, that if you follow these out, it's pretty clear this is John, the writer of the gospel, though it's not specifically identified. That's very clearly who we're talking about. Verse 26, Jesus answered, It is the one whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread he gave to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. So the direct answer from Judas indicated, from Jesus indicated Judas, Judas as the betrayer. Apparently, Jesus' answer was given quietly since verses 27 through 30 make it clear that the other disciples didn't know why, Jesus, why Judas left. Uh, the piece of bread dipped in the common dish and then handed to the guilty one was the indicated sign. So he says, whoever I hand this to, he's telling John, that's the one. He gives it to Judas Iscariot. Now, the, the, we understand the custom was the host of, of a festival, in this case is Jesus, he's the host here in this case, he could dip something in a common bowl and pull, put out a, give a particularly tasty morsel to sort of an honored guest. <laughs> so, you know... Uh, pass it along as a mark of friendship. So this is quite ironic. He gives this thing to Judas. So I'm sure the disciples, you know, they, they, don't, they don't think Judas is the one at all because he's, he's giving him this. He's honoring Judas here with this. Well, we better stop here, I guess, at uh, this point. And uh, thank you for staying with me. And we will pick this up, Lord willing, next time. Well, it got a little warm in here, didn't it? I heard those bones creaking over there. How are you? Good. Good, good. How are you? Good. How about you? I'm still breathing, I guess. Well, that's a good thing. Yeah, I think about when I first moved down here to Bridgewater when, when I was 70. I was in much better shape than today. I think I've gone downhill or something. How long have you been down here? Uh, 
so it'll be uh, you know seven years in uh, came in 2015. So it'd be seven years in August, about six and a half. Yeah. 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 In August it'll be seven years. Can you believe that? Time flies, doesn't it? Doesn't seem like long ago. Well, you came over and helped me unload. You remember that? And you remember? And so he got. Did he tell you the story about the 19 inches? Or he tell you that story? He didn't tell you that. I probably didn't tell her. So we go into the bedroom. You know, we're putting the furniture down, and I say, you know, we got to have this much space. I think it was like 19 inches. I mean, it was. And I measured. I tape me. Had to be this much. And he said, well, why is that? I said, well, that's because that's the, so the vacuum cleaner will fit in between. Yeah. <laughs> we got a smaller vacuum cleaner now, so we don't have to, we don't have to worry about it. <laughs> but I have my tape measure right there. Because if you, you know, if you put it too close, you can't really, you can't. So I just thought, well, you know. Just never I know, never done. Yeah. I think it was 15 or something. I think it was 15, but whatever it was. Yeah, I measured the vacuum cleaner because I was thinking, you know, because I think I had that problem at my other house. You know, there was a place you just couldn't vacuum because how do you get it? Because you can't get to the wall, you know. Instead of going this way, turn it this way. Well, you just have to, you can't, yeah, well, but you, <laughs> yeah, you got to pick it up by hand and do that. Yeah. You need, you, yeah, you need a little hand one like that. Well, this is, yeah, you could, I guess, yeah. You could take the hose off like that. It makes it easier if it fits when you're doing it. That's right. Just do it. Yeah. So that's what we did. Yeah. I had it all planned out there. Doesn't it? Doesn't it? Does it? And the thing that.